Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I give him you, the noblest that survives, the eldest son of this distressed queen. Conqueror, victorious Titus, rue the tears I shed, a mother's tears and passion for her son, and if ever thy sons were dear to thee, oh, think my son to be as dear to me. Sufficeth not that we were brought to Rome to beautify thy triumphs and return, captive to thee in thy Roman yoke. But must my sons be slaughtered in the streets? for valiant doings in their country's cause. Oh, if to fight for king and commonweal were piety in thine, it is in these. Andronicus, stain not thy tomb with blood. Wilt thou draw near the nature of the gods? Draw near them then in being merciful. Sweet mercy is nobility's true badge. Thrice noble Titus, spare my firstborn son. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. You have joined us for Titus Andronicus, and you just heard there a little bit of a precursor of what is going to be a very bloody hour. That was Tamara, the queen of the Goths, speaking to Titus Andronicus. You heard her closing lines there. Sweet mercy is nobility's true badge. Thrice noble Titus, spare my firstborn son. That's what she says. Um, I am beginning to doubt, though, whether or not mercy is nobility's true badge after reading this play, seeing this play. Hey, we have a special guest that I would like to introduce to you. This is my friend, Dr. Tom Pope. Let me tell you a little bit about him before I welcome him onto the show. Tom Pope is professor of political science at Lee University. There he teaches political science and directs the university's Kairos Honors Program. He loves interdisciplinary conversation. He loves teaching Shakespeare's vision of philosophy and political life. And he delights in introducing or reintroducing his students to Shakespeare. 
and he loves to take incoming students down to the Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern each fall, which, Tom, you and I have done together. Unfortunately, not this year, but last year I had a great time. We saw um, Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, we did. And you took your students back to the Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern this year. What did you guys see? Uh, Troilus and Cressida, which I don't love to read, but was surprisingly well done. We no laughed, kidding. we cried. It was wonderful. Okay. That play is a great segue to the play we're about to discuss, Titus Andronicus, because for me, Troilus and Cressida is one of Shakespeare's most, for me, cynical plays. It's, it's hard to walk away from that play feeling anything other than kind of like mercifully ended without more death. And this play, you can't even really say it mercifully ended without more death because all of the deaths happen in this play. As a matter of fact, Tom, I'm going to read you a little bit of a review from a 1956 production of Troilus, of, excuse me, of Titus Andronicus. I didn't tell you before we were on the air that I was going to do this. It's a review and a headline of Peter Brooks, famous British Shakespeare director of a very famous Titus that he did in 1956. Here it is. Here's the opening headline, I think right. from maybe the, the Guardian. Peter Brooks' production has them dropping in the aisles. That's the headline. <laughs> Apparently, the patrons were so sickened by the play that they were regularly being carried out of the play and they had an ambulance parked curbside waiting to take them to the hospital or to do whatever medical maneuvers they had to do because the play was so grotesque and here we are the week of halloween doing titus andronicus i it, do you feel like you're being punished for anything tom by i mean it it definitely this you know i hear of horror movies being advertised by uh you know three people died of a heart attack in the middle of this movie and that that sounds about like uh what the early productions were going through here completely completely okay um tell me about your experience of the play have you seen a live production have you seen a film production have you read the play yeah i have uh I've taught this play once. I teach a class called Shakespeare and Politics. And um, I I was just looking for a play that nobody had read and that might be interesting. I had seen the um, Anthony Hopkins uh, does uh, an early 90s version called Titus, I believe, yeah. which yeah. is extraordinary uh, in the fullest sense of things. Um, <laughs> and... You know, this play, I was struck that there, there's blood, there's gore, but there's also uh, a kind of care among the characters to try to figure out what's the right thing to do at any given moment. And mm. I appreciated those kinds of conversations with students about uh, what would you do in this situation? Is this reacting or overreacting? You know, family is important. State is important. Uh, what all we do. Um, let me give just a little overview, not a dense overview of the plot of the play. And then I want to ask you what your students reaction typically has been. So 
just let's start with the body count. And, and let me also say this. I know that we have a lot of listeners who love listening to the show in the car, and oftentimes they have their kids in the car. Tom and I are not going to skirt what happens in this play. So I think if you're uncomfortable with your kids hearing about, we're not going to be going into gruesome details, but uncomfortable have your kids hear about some pretty adult stuff. This is probably not the podcast to listen to in the car with them. I think listen to it at home with your earbuds in because it's Shakespeare's bloodiest play. 14 killings. believe nine of them happen on stage. Six severed limbs, a rape, a live burial, a case of insanity, and to top it all off, an act of cannibalism. And we see that on stage also. So I guess like Happy Halloween um, is our warning to you. The play begins with General Titus Andronicus, a Roman, who has lost 21 sons in battle. Four are yet alive. So I don't know which is more remarkable that he has lost 21 sons or that he's begat 25. After he defeats the Goths, Titus permits his sons, and this is where the play begins, to kill the oldest son of the Goth queen Tamara. The whole play is going to be this back and forth between Titus and the Goth queen Tamara. That's T-A-M-O-R-A. Afterwards, Titus helps Saturninus become emperor. Saturninus plans to marry Titus's daughter, Lavinia. Instead, she marries somebody else, Bassinius. And he's aided by, Bassinius is aided by Titus's sons, one of whom Titus kills. So Titus kills his own son on stage. I believe it's act one, Tom. He kills one of his own yeah. sons. And we're kind of like set up for the rest of the play. Like this is the, he is willing to even do this to satisfy his what? Honor, his piety. Okay, now Saturninus then marries Tamara. So Saturninus, emperor, marries Tamara, makes her empress. And now we've got about 18 revenge plots kind of all queued up. Let's pause there. There's plenty more to go, but let's go back to the question that I just asked. How do your students respond to this? I mean, it hits the ground running. I, (laughs) when I try to pitch this play to them, I mean, it's striking. If you look at the character list, there are, I think, 24 named characters in my edition of this. And you you mentioned 14 of them are toast by the end of the play, (laughs) right? right? Uh, So you can't really hold on to anybody for too long. And the kind of brutality of this universe is at the forefront right at the beginning where, you know, war is bloody, Titus has lost his children, and that kind of bleeds into Rome. And so I think... They are very confused. My students are very confused that people immediately appeal to violence as opposed to speech or just conversation. Right. We're so kind of caught up. I teach at a a Christian institution uh, and students are so caught up in a kind of Christian paradigm of mercy and turning the other cheek uh, that when we see this kind of 
realpolitik coming to the forefront here, they don't quite know what to make of it. Yeah. Uh, and this earlier, more pagan Rome reveals something that I think is uncomfortable for them. Later Rome, the Rome of Julius Caesar that we have a play for, makes probably a lot of sense to your students. You know, we have an emperor, Julius Caesar, who is killed by senators. And how do they resolve it, at least in the short term, by kind of talking it out through the use of rhetoric. But this is an earlier depiction of Rome. And I'll talk, let's talk a little bit about like the history, like where do we have, what are the sources for this play? But this earlier vision of Rome, oh my gosh, Tom, every time there is some sort of conflict, just as you said, anger goes to, it spikes to a nine and the only resolution seems to be, I'm either going to kill somebody now or I'm going to plot revenge and kill somebody later. Which makes me ask, do we have any, ought we have any sympathy for anybody in the play? I mean, another way of what I'm really trying to ask is, um, maybe who are we rooting for? Who are we supposed to side with? It's tricky. The play introduces is introduced to us with death, where uh, Titus has come back from the wars bearing his dead sons. And when we think of their deaths, we don't think of the tragedy of it. I mean, we, we're sad for him, but that kind of death is a, an honored death. And he kind of praises the nobility of their death. He's going to bury them in the family tomb where generations yeah. of Andronici have been buried. And so the death for him is not a problem, right? It's it's the dishonor of death that would be a problem. And I think that at least as I sympathize with characters, um, Titus presents his killing of Tamara's child, not as I'm so angry at you, I need to take vengeance for my sons, but it's kind of a cause and effect relationship um yeah the the his sons right uh his sons and the brethren the roman brethren that are slain religiously ask for a sacrifice he says and so it's it's revenge sort of but mostly it's just a rebalancing of a natural order that is demanded totally. by nature for titus totally i emily maeda was on um the podcast recently and we were talking about one of Shakespeare's play. I think we actually hazarded on to Hamlet for a little bit. And one of the things that is just a taken for granted in most Shakespeare plays is that the revenge cycle has to end somewhere. And we are in a world of Titus Andronicus where the revenge cycle just keeps going it is it's almost like a physical law of the universe okay you kill one of mine i'm gonna kill one of yours i might kill two of yours if i get two of yours you're gonna come back at me and you're gonna get two of mine if not three of mine and if you think about like the way to resolve a revenge cycle like this there's not many ways out other than complete decimation of one of the enemies which is pretty uncommon. And I think maybe for your students, I'm thinking about theirs again, they don't just attend a Christian university, Lee University, 
but they also live in a Christian culture where like the revenge cycle is something from the smoky past. You know, most Mm -hmm. of the time it's from the smoky past. And is that something that's also hard for them to understand? Yeah, there's very much, you know, they'll see conflicts in the world today and they'll ask, well, why can't these sides just get along? And they don't seem to fully grasp the generational uh, conflicts and the the sense of justice and injustice that are just wrapped up in the way of life uh, that I think this play starts to reveal to us. There's a, a political philosopher named Hannah Arendt who mm. um, in her book on the human condition talks about forgiveness. And um, she suggests that kind of the natural state of man is this eye for an eye, that if I harm you, you harm me, I harm you, you harm me, and that nature kind of sweeps us up in this retributive cycle, but that the truest possibility for human choice to kind of resist the flood of of the tide of fortune is forgiveness, where you step in and say, justice would be me poking out your eye, and yet I choose to not act. Uh, And so forgiveness is this radical act of human freedom uh, in that cycle. And there's a little bit of that in this play where we see, you know, the gods are kind of present, kind of silent. Nature seems to suggest certain things. And we always ask, well, where's the stopping point? And can we stop? And is that anywhere in here? And I think it kind of has to go to the bitter end because yeah, there's no reason to stop. No, there's no reason to stop. I, I The audio that we heard at the beginning, I want to say the last two lines again. Sweet mercy is nobility's true badge. Thrice born Titus, spare my firstborn son. When Titus doesn't spare her firstborn son, um, when he doesn't show any sort of forgiveness or mercy, we kind of, that's the signal for the rest of the play. Nobody else is going to do it either. You know, if Titus chose, all right, I'm going to let this pass. You did terrible harm to me. I'm going to forgive you. We're going to have peace. Then we've got a one scene play, things are wrapped up neatly, everybody goes home, but that's not what happens at all. Titus kind of brushes brushes mercy to the side and begins this cycle. Tom, let me keep going with the plot because there's plenty of revenge and blood left. So Saturninus, now emperor, marries Tamara. We find out that Tamara has a lover, Aaron the Moor. Aaron the Moor is talking to um, the two sons of Tamara. And he's like, you know what? Here's what I think you should do. I think you should take Titus's daughter, Lavinia. I think you should rape her and cut off her hands and take out her tongue. And so that's what they do. And then someone from Tamara's tribe comes to Titus and they say, listen, we have your two sons. You can keep them alive. The only thing you've got to do, no big deal, is just cut off your hand and send it to us through this messenger. And Titus says, okay, great, I'll do that. So he cuts off his own hand on stage. 
He sends the hand through the messenger, and as soon as he has done that, he finds out that his two sons have actually been executed. Their heads arrive at his door. Oh my gosh, Titus has just cut off his own hand. It's never coming back. So we are now like in the absolute middle of it. We are, yeah, neck deep in gore, and it doesn't seem like there's any possible way out. The way out, we will find out at the end of this play, is through the kind of like the most grotesque act of them all, which just kind of tops everything. But before we get there, piety. This Roman virtue of piety, if you've ever read the Aeneid, it's sort of the theme word for Virgil's Aeneid. And it's crucial in this play also, isn't it, Tom? But it, it, that's, that's yes. my question. It's like, what's the role of it in this play? So Titus's honorific is pious. Uh, and he seems to... His represent. honorific, say, say what you mean. He's given uh, a particular title uh, that goes beyond his his normal name, Titus Andronicus, uh, and he is uh, referred to as kind of embodying his surname is Pius uh, in Act One, Scene One. Uh, so we learn this about him, and he seems to, as we suggested earlier, he seems to represent a deference to Rome in particular and all that Rome stands for. So earlier on, when we were saying. You know, why is it that he doesn't just show mercy on Tamara and Tamara's son? I wonder if Titus even thinks that that is possible for him, if that's his place to do that. Um, mm. He is fulfilling a responsibility to Rome and to the gods, and he does not get to choose whether that responsibility is fulfilled or not because of his piety and deference to that greater obligation. So it's almost like he is like subject to mis- to the machine of the state, but it's not just the state the way that we think of the state, which is kind of independent or makes an attempt to be kind of somewhat neutral about religious convictions. This is, he's subject to the machine of the state and the state is motivated by a vision of piety. And so... Mm-hmm he's got to keep going. He has to keep, he has to keep like he, he is, his will is not his own. Yeah. And Rome is a, a system and way of life kind of permeates the whole thing such that when Tamara is like prioritizing family over everything, right. Save my right. son. Don't do this. Titus can look at her and say, listen, I've lost 21 of these kids, right? Like I've already sacrificed my children to the state. And by the way, later on in the scene, he will outright kill his own son right. for the honor of the state. And so, He's not a hypocrite in this, uh, which seems interesting and important here. The kind of the familial love as espoused by the Goths, sort of, and the kind of love of Rome and the higher love that Titus, correctly or incorrectly, presents here. He has a code, does Titus. Does Tamara have a code? It's, Does she have something that she lives by that's like deeper, higher than family? I don't know. Every time I look at her, she is she's presented as clever, full of cunning. Mm-hmm. 
And I wonder, it's like a love of one's own, but she lies to her own children later on in the play. And so it's, she loves her sons, but she seems to love her sons as her sons rather than as persons independent of her. And Mm. her love of Aaron is able to get in the way of her love of her husband. She is a complicated character in her priorities. Yeah. She seems to love freedom and uh, free action, I would say. You mentioned Aaron the Moore. Aaron the Moore is kind of her side lover. So even after she marries the emperor, she's made empress. As soon as that happened, she's kind of sneaking off to the woods with Aaron the Moore. Aaron the Moore is an interesting character. He may be in Shakespeare's plays, like we we are kind of tempted to identify him with Othello the Moore, the great general. But aside from being a Moore, I for me that's about, and they're both like great fighters. That's about where the similarity ends. Like Othello is a man of great honor. He does have a jealousy problem, but he's someone that you respect very deeply. What's your opinion on Aaron the Moor? Yeah, I mean, he's he's way closer to Iago uh, in that yes, he, right. T- towards the end of the play, praises vice for the sake of vice. Uh, and I think he's a character that I have struggled to figure out um, because he he seems to enjoy mischief and particularly the destruction of the Andronicus family. But he also is pretty okay seeing the sons of Tamara come to no good in the end. He, you haven't mentioned this yet, but he will prioritize his own flesh and blood in an important way. And I wonder, this is not anything that I'm proving right now, but just like something I was thinking about earlier. Yeah. You know, there's there's this tension between seeming and being throughout this play that people, Titus wants for the face of things and the the exterior of things to match the interior, right? I am honorable. Let my honor reveal itself. Mm. Um, and there's this moment in Aaron's speeches where he says uh, something like, would the blackness of my soul match the blackness of my face or something like that? And I wonder the extent to which Aaron represents this reconciliation of seeming and being in a single person. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. I, I have not thought that, I, that, that never crossed my mind. There is, they do, the play really does highlight that he is a Moor, that he's Moorish, that he's dark-skinned, that his son, who he has with Tamra, is dark-skinned also. And so that's like how he, the sons of Tamra are like, we're going to out you, bro. We're going to like, show that this is not the emperor's son we're going to out you it it, in a way this play highlights his moorishness much for me more than othello's moorishness is highlighted in othello of course it's important othello but once we kind of get into the play those distinguishing characteristics kind of fall by the wayside, but not so with Aaron the more they seem to kind of like show up all the time um, with various characters is the thing that they highlight whenever they see him, whenever they see his son. Yeah. So Othello and Aaron are both outsiders and are marked right. as outsiders by their appearance. Tamara 
they would refer to Tamara's uh, Saturninus says, I, I prefer her color, I think. Uh, but, you know, color is certainly something that's relevant in this play throughout. But she is able to be an outsider and yet uh, disguise herself as an insider in a way that Aaron is precluded from that and ultimately has to run away uh, in a way that Tamara can work from the inside. And man, making sense of that is really complicated. Okay, so why would a goth queen be able to kind of integrate into Roman society in a way that Aaron the Moore would struggle to do that, you know, um, because we're not just asking a question about Shakespeare's time, you know, how would like the Romans view the, or how would really the British view the Goths and view the Moors in whenever this play was written, uh, late 1500s. That's a complicated, complicated question. And yeah. I almost think for the sake of clarity and time, <laughs> we should just sidestep it and recommend that someone take that up as their, as their master's thesis or something like that. Yeah. And with this, like, this is not a historical Rome. This is a nowhere right. Rome. And so it, it has all kinds of anachronisms that it's drawing on. Greek mythology and Roman yep. myth and refers to Coriolanus all the time and also Christians. And so totally. Yeah. So about the writing of the play, they believe it was written between 1588 and 1593. Tom, I prefer the early dating. I will tell you why in a second. I have no historical reasons for it. I just want it to be the case, but I'll talk about that in a second. So it is, of course, super bloody. Like Tom said, it's not a historical play. It's a mixture of classical myth and legend, medieval myth and legend. The kind of closest approximation we can come to real a real source is a story from Ovid's Metamorphoses, The Rape of Philemon. And Lavinia, daughter of Titus actually refers to the story in the play as an explanation about what has happened to her. So my reason for liking the early dating is this. I like the idea that Shakespeare started his career, and this would have been like maybe his fifth play if it's dated as early as 1588. Mm -hmm. I like the idea for some reason that if Shakespeare started, that he started his career with a horror play, because mm -hmm. there's kind of a precedent for this in like really great Hollywood directors often start their career with horror. Peter Jackson, David Lynch, Guillermo del Toro, Sam Raimi of Spider-Man fame, all of them were horror directors before they went on to do kind of more mainstream stuff. I don't know why. I just like the idea that Shakespeare is like, yep, I got to pay the bills. Let's do, you know, I started with yeah, some Civil War plays, Henry VI, parts one, two, and three. Let's go to horror now. This one was super popular too, right? So right. You know, there's something about bodies that are enchanting and terrifying. And so you play with that and suddenly uh, the audiences love it. There's this line in Act Four that I think is really interesting. He says, uh, uh, like, is it, why is it that we've got to be so brutal to each other? Is it that mm. the gods uh, kind of like 
the gods must love our brutality or something like that. Uh, no. Oh, why should nature build so foul a den unless the gods delight in tragedies? Mm. And I kind of like think that's us, right? Why do we yeah. write such gross plays and why do we have, you know, have such brutalities? Because we we love it. We, the audience, are drawn to it. I'm trying to think of the play. Maybe you can name it for me. There's a great line. The gods do kill us for our sport. Oh, in Lear, yeah. Yeah. Who says it in Lear? Do you remember? It's Lear. He's on the windswept teeth. I think. That's right. Uh, no, it that might be sounds Kent. right. Anyway. It, it, it echoes what you just said. That, yeah, there is something... Why do we kill ourselves so much? It must amuse the gods. You know, we just have this proclivity for that and it happens over and over. And yeah, there are times when Shakespeare takes us kind of like right to the edge of absurd land. Our characters take a look around and they ask, is this just like the the nature of things? Is this just how it is? Well, in this play in particular, it's, you know, it's a pre-Christian play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been Hamlet where we've got these pangs of consciousness or anything. This is clearly set in a pagan period. And, you know, literally Titus is shooting arrows with his laments to the gods and they fall down silence. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is one of the deep questions of this play is if the gods are not going to provide us with justice, do we do it ourselves? And mm-hmm. what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we do it individually, it looks like terror and horror. Uh, and so maybe we need something beyond us to uh, create a system of justice that doesn't end in the cycle. Right. Right. You mentioned Titus sending up arrows, asking for the gods' help. He doesn't get it, but he's very open to that. He really wants that to happen. Tamara, late in the play, capitalizes on this. So she comes to Titus dressed as the goddess Revenge, and her goal is to talk Titus into telling his son, Lucius, who is now marching on Rome. Her goal is to talk Titus into saying, Lucius, you got to stop. You can't march on Rome. Tamara brings her two sons, this is act four, act five, with her. And Titus is so open to this kind of hope that he has that the gods will interject that he's starting to listen to Tamara dressed as revenge and believe her, or so it appears. And he says to her, hey, listen, if you really are the goddess revenge, kill these two who are her sons that escorted her there, kill these two guys. And her reply, she's like really quick on her feet. Uh, can't do it. These are my ministers, rape and murder. So Titus is like, okay, cool. I get it. You can't kill rape and murder. Cause that's kind of part of what you do. Great. I will talk to Lucius and Hey, let's get together with you and the emperor sometime real soon. Let's have dinner together. And we'll kind of like make this all, you know, a happy piece finally. And Tamara's like, great. That sounds great. And Titus says, the only thing, could you just leave rape and murder here while you go talk to the emperor before you come back? Just leave them here. I'll look after them. I'll know that you'll work come in the back kitchen for to them. Do, yeah. I got some work to, kitchen, to, do in the, to do in the kitchen. So that's what happens. Tamara goes to the emperor. 
the emperor comes back and the kind of ultimate scene of our play is everybody sitting down for dinner. We know what has happened before Tamara and the emperor return. Titus has killed her two sons and he has asked Lavinia to help him catch their blood in basins. He takes their bodies, he makes them into a paste and he <laughs> don't fast forward this. If you're with your kids in the car, <laughs> he bakes their flesh into pies. When the emperor and Tamara return, they sit down and before the pie is even served, something disastrous happens. Um, famous story, Tom, I wonder if you can tell it. Famous story of Roman legend about it's Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. No. Who is it, Tom? You can't remember either. I can't help you here. I'm oh, sorry. you were shaking your head. I think it is Virginia. Virginia is this um kind of a legendary character who was raped and her father rather than her have to deal with the shame of rape kills her and it's perceived in rome that he did this good thing and that she died a noble death are you talking so, about lucrece lucrece that's who i'm talking about she kills herself yeah oh she does okay 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 she kills and she's herself. referenced in this play uh as to whether whether Lavinia is like a, a Lucrece and that's the onset of, I'm sorry, I just interrupted you. No, 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 I needed, of, clearly I needed help here. So the, the Tarquins, the kind of tyrants of Rome, uh, the son of the, the tyrant has come in uh, and stolen into the house of the greatest general of Rome and sees the virtue and beauty of his wife. He rapes her, uh, leaves her there. She calls her husband back. She tells her husband, I've, this has happened to me, then she says, to protect my honor, uh, I will kill myself. And she then kills herself. And this is what leads to the downfall of the Tarquins and the creation of the Roman Republic. Right. Like, Superbus, the father of the raper, gets killed by the Roman people after this. They're just like, this is too crazy. We've got to do away with this. And so he was the last of the seven Roman kings. And after that, the people were like, listen, we've got to do something different here. Like these, these guys are just out of control. Okay, now that story is kind of retold by Titus at the dinner table. You're like, where are we going here, mister? Like, what is this? And he concludes... By killing his own daughter, Lavinia, who has been, her tongue has been taken out. Both hands have been lost. She's been raped. Everything terrible has happened to her. Her father kills her. I suppose we're supposed to see this as sort of like a maybe a merciful act or I don't know. And then in the shock of the afterglow of this event, the emperor and Tamara are like, what in the world? This is crazy. Why are you being so nuts? And that's when it's revealed, you think that's nuts? Guess what you've been eating in the pie that are on your plates right now at the big dinner table? Your two sons. And that's just like, okay, it can't get any crazier than this. It just can't get any crazier than this. And it's almost, for me, Tom, the play ends with by like Titus out crazied 
a cast full of crazy and then wins. Yeah. You see it differently. So there's always this fine line when I read this play. The first time I read it, I was all in. Titus has lost his mind. Like grief has overcome this man. And certainly given this set of circumstances, grief and madness is kind of the only outlet to proceed. Um, This time when I read it, I noticed that Titus was always very careful to stay within the realm of piety. He Mm -hmm. never goes against Saturninus. Uh, It is his son who uh, rebels against Saturninus. It's his son, Lucius, who ultimately kills Saturninus. And Titus, up until the moment when uh, he sent his hand to Saturninus and Saturninus sends back the hand with the two heads, right? That's when he kind of flips. But even then, he is going against Tamara uh, as a kind of like goth invader here, as opposed to the kind of authority of Rome. And so I'm I'm interested in the way in which Titus seems to be careful and deliberate in his actions, as opposed to merely um, entering into just crazy madness. There's some, there's something, he's a little bit more precise than I'm giving him credit for when I say he out crazy, a crazy cast. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that the, so the goths and ultimately even Saturninus seem to revel in pain, suffering, depravity. And Titus does not do that until the end to mm. Tamara. But other than that, he's always very restrained in, okay. in how he acts. Okay. That's, that's helpful. That's helpful. That's a different perspective. I think maybe just like drinking all that blood just got, it just got to <laughs> me, Tom. Um, you mentioned hands. Hands, I, I, I am reluctant to put too much symbolic weight into the cutting off of a hand or of two hands. But when it happens over and over and over, it makes you wonder if there's some significance to the loss of hands. So just to review, Lavinia loses both of her hands when she's raped. Marcus, Lucius, and Titus are each told to offer their hands in ransom for the two sons. In a strange turn of events, Titus tricks the others and cuts off his before they're able to do it. So is it just, um, this is a terrible thing to do somebody, you're going to be debilitated for the rest of your life. It's not like being stabbed in the side, which you either, you know, you make it and you kind of, you're not necessarily debilitated. If you lose a hand or you lose both your hands, it's just a terrible, terrible punishment. Is it just a punishment or is there something symbolically significant happening here with the loss of all these hands, Tom? Yeah, I have tended to see the loss of hands as the loss of action. Titus is a mm. soldier, right? He, uh, he, when his hand is cut off, he delivers it and says uh, something like, you know, when you deliver it, tell him this is the hand that saved Rome from a thousand defeats or something like that. Um, and when Lavinia has her hands cut off, it is in reference to uh, the rape of Philomena when uh, in Ovid's story, they cut out her tongue but leave her hands and she's able to weave a uh, 
uh, a tapestry that reveals, you know, what's happened to her. And so um, hands seem to be about agency and activity mm. uh, and that's about all I got with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I didn't want to read too much into it. It was just the number of them more than anything else that made me not want to gloss over it. Um, end of the play, most everybody's dead, uh, including Titus. Uh, those among the living, Lucius and Marcus, the sons, they praise Titus Andronicus which makes me think, yeah, there's some respect we're supposed to have for Titus at the end of the play. Or the alternative is, uh, well, this is just what happens. We've got two sons of Titus left. Of course, they're going to offer some praise and honorific sayings to their deceased father. I mean, does the play end? Are we supposed to think, yeah, Titus, um, violent, but you know, pious, tried to do the right thing. What do you, yeah, how I, do you read the closing speeches? I wonder the extent to which Lucius is carrying on his father's memory or not. So at the beginning of the play, Lucius is one of the sons that tries to stop Titus from murdering his other son mm. uh, and he is the son that goes off and rebel you know he he's banished from the romans and goes and sides with the goths uh titus at the outset of the play is presented as a potential contender for emperor because he's beloved by the people uh and towards uh the end of the play in act five lucius is stated as being beloved by the people so even though he's leading an army against rome saturninus is kind of worried that he's so popular um and I wonder if Lucius seems to be critiquing this older kind of Titus is just completely blind to his effect on the people and how mm. popular he is and how he is endangering right rule by being so popular. Yeah. Uh, Lucius seems to recognize that and leverages it to reestablish peace in Rome in a way that his father accidentally caused civil war destruction all of these things by being blind similar to Coriolanus by the way uh so yeah that's kind of the the goal of Lucius is to reestablish peace now that all the nobles are dead except him and the people are on his side yeah yeah good luck good luck to him yeah. I mean everyone's <laughs> dead it's just gonna be fine now yeah just yeah I am not going to wade into this and I'm not going to ask you to wade into it, but I, I do think of the, the feud that is happening between Israel and Hamas and it feels interminable and it feels like it is deeper than anything sociopolitical. And I wonder if we're kind of reading it at the time that that, that antagonism is really starting to flare. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible reminder of just how bad humans can be to each other mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna close by asking you tom if you've not already been on this show if you've not heard me ask this of a couple of other guests a two-part question all right about the popularity of this play and 
the actual first part of the question is, can you tell me the three most popular plays according to the British public? So when the British public was asked, what plays of Shakespeare have you seen or read? I would this love for you to modern tell modern day British public, modern today. day British public. That's right. So I would love to know what you think the three most popular plays are. And then in the 37 Shakespeare plays, where does Titus Andronicus fall? Cause we know it's not top three. I don't think we ruined yeah. it. By, yeah. I would imagine it's interesting. Cause if you ask what the British public thinks, the top, you know, plays are that's maybe different than high school american audiences probably right. julius either romeo and juliet right. nonetheless i think henry v should probably be up there if it's not uh, okay. there's a lot to speak to great britain there so this um, is not this is not like what you th- this is a little bit of sort of like the british public ought to have voted for henry v even if they well, didn't but i they think they actually to might too so i can okay. imagine a lot that i can imagine that being a really popular play Great. Um, i could imagine hamlet just because one of greatest works of literature of all time. Uh, and probably a comedy has got to be in there. Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. Those are my three. How far off am I? You got one of the three. Oh my goodness. I think your Henry V guess was a great guess, just considering what a great king he was in the eyes of the British public. But he finished absolutely middle of the pack. Like, Seventeenth out of thirty-seven. So Saint Crispin's Day speech. They should just read that every Saint Crispin's <laughs> every Day. Every Saint Crispin's Day. They should. But it was not. I mean, like they should do that, and maybe it would move it up a little bit higher. So, <laughs> uh, Midsummer Night's Dream finished third. All right. Do you want to recalibrate for your your top two? Hamlet is number four. I mean, we're going to, at this point, like I'm going to throw in Merry Wives of Windsor or something like who knows, <laughs> who knows what the British public want now. They're, they're so unpredictable. Number one is Romeo and Juliet. Ah, okay. Okay. So high school education is roughly the same this side of the pond. It sounds like it. Side. Macbeth yeah. is number two. Yeah. I right. guess. Did you say where Titus Andronicus finished? Titus Andronicus. This is going to be, uh, I don't know. I would rank this one uh, fourth from bottom. So okay, uh, sixth from bottom. Sixth from bottom. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, below it, Troilus and Cressida, Cymbeline, <laughs> King John, Timon of Athens, and Pericles. I'm okay with that, except given my recent experience of Troilus and Cressida, I would move that up higher. So. Really. Really, I never would have guessed that. You saw a great production because on the page, that play needs that play needs some help. <laughs> you're saying the Iliad needs help? Is that what you're saying? What'd you say? You're saying the Iliad needs help? The, the Iliad done by Shakespeare. Okay, here's my <laughs> comparison, Tom. I'm like, I'm so proud of this that I'm bringing it up on another podcast, a second t- podcast. Troilus and Cressida, it's okay. If... Elvis was covered by another like really great performer. <laughs> you would think, how can you lose? It's Elvis's songs done by whoever it is, the national radio head, the Beatles. You'd think can't lose, but that's what happened. 
Shakespeare covers Homer and it just doesn't work. Why? Yeah, I'm interested to reread that play in light of my seeing it. I'm interested to see Titus uh, mm. in an actual stage production, maybe with students, and then hopefully I don't get fired. Man, I was about to say, make sure you have that parental consent form filled out, you know, like call the parents for you. Are you sure you want you sign this parental consent form? Yeah. One pitch I, I was talking to you at the before we got started with this, the the Pelican Shakespeare yeah. has uh, these beautiful editions in paperback of Shakespeare's plays. And uh, the, the quality of the paper is not great, but the covers are just delightful and subtle. Uh, the Titus Andronic is one I've had sitting on my desk at work and students will walk in and look at it. And on the picture of it is uh, Lavinia. Um, her hands have been removed uh their her tongue is currently being cut off by what appears to be a, a small bird uh and yet it's lovely but mm. terrifying mm. and on the back there's uh a lovely little cake uh or pie if you will shaped uh -huh. like a coffin with a skull on it so I go on go on the Pelican website and check it out. Uh, the covers are fascinating. They're beautiful, beautiful designs. Yeah, you could just you could make a really beautiful picture book just out of the covers of their Shakespeare plays. Um, Tom, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I also want to thank because I do it way too rarely. I want to thank our audio engineer Logan Green. He does a masterful job of this. I want to thank. Sophia Maeda, now Perrin, who is my assistant producer. She helps select a lot of the audio. She helps me craft the synopses that I read on the air. And I don't always do those from memory, believe it or not. And she, uh, she and I work together to produce a lot of the questions that frame this show. So I wanted to really thank Logan and Sophia. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of audio from the pie at the table scene this is from a 1956 version not the one done in london by peter brook but by the oregon shakespeare festival you're going to hear titus andronicus here played by don gunderson and tamara played by irene g baird this is the close to titus andronicus what was she ravished tell who did the deed oh it please you eat please your highness please why is thou killed thine only daughter thus not i was Chiron and Demetrius. They ravished her and cut away her tongue. And they, it was they that did her all this wrong. Go bring them hither to us presently. Why, there they are. <laughs> Both baked in that pie whereof their mother daintily had fed. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.